I want to introduce you to a man who passed away in 2001. His name is, is Charles, yeah, Charles Templeton. How many of you ever heard that name before, Charles Templeton? Okay, a few people. Charles Templeton uh, was born in 1915. He was 19 years old when he gave his heart to Christ. He began evangelizing right away. In the 40s, late 40s, he shared the platform with Billy Graham. He eventually started a church, uh, uh, had a church built, 12,000 seat auditorium. And he he was proclaiming the gospel. 1957, and I should preface by preface it was saying this, that a few years before this, Charles Templeton began entertaining doubts about his Christian faith, specifically in the area of creation and the reliability of the Bible. Charles Templeton began to read many books in this area, and he came to a crisis in faith when he began to seriously contemplate how a loving God could create a world that is this messed up. And he began wondering, where is a God of love? In 1957, he made a decision. He stepped out of the ministry and he became an agnostic, declared agnostic. And he died in 2001 with that same decree. He's written a number of books against Christianity. Lee Strobel wrote in his introduction about him. Lee Strobel wrote a book entitled The Case for Faith. If you have questions or if you have doubts about how a loving God could send someone to hell, how a loving God could allow evil in this world, and what about the the whole good and evil dilemma anyway? A lot of questions that we can have about faith, and he entertains and he asks those questions and he has wonderful, excellent examples or, or explanations, and he interviews people to get their answers, uh, people who have studied these things, men of God who have, who have contemplated these difficult questions. But in this introduction, he decided he wanted to go to a man who had written a book, who had gone through this crisis of faith, and in the last few years, he acquired Alzheimer's, Charles Templeton. I don't want to read something to you. Now understand where this man where he, where he believed, and he was then asked the question by Lee Strobel, so Charles, give me your assessment of Jesus. Now here is a man who had in the last 50 or, or 40 so years of his life railed against Christianity, still was friends with Billy Graham and said, you know, whatever Billy wants to believe, that's his business. But the truth is, Christianity is blah, blah, blah. By the way, in 1957, when he made that declaration, and I tried doing some research on this and found no answer, but incidentally, his first wife passed away. When asked this question, how do you assess this Jesus? He said, 
He was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life and in all my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except that he was a form of greatness? I was taken aback. You sound like you really care about him, I said. Well, yes, he's the most important thing in my life, came his reply. I, 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 he stuttered, searching for the right word. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. Does that not sound strange to you? Let me continue. I wasn't sure how to respond. You say that with some emotion, I said. Well, yes. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes, yes, and, and tough. And he continues on. And Lee Strobel asks him, and so the world would do well to emulate him. Oh my goodness, yes. I have tried and tried as far as I can. I can go to act as I have believed he would act. That doesn't mean I could read his mind because one of the most fascinating things about him was that he often did the opposite thing you'd expect. Abruptly, Templeton cut short his thoughts. There was a brief pause, almost as if he was uncertain whether he should continue. Um, But no, he said slowly. He's the most... He stopped and then started again. In my view, he declared, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, he said in his voice, as his voice began to crack, I miss him. With that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from him, his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. What was going on? Was this an unguarded glimpse into his soul? I felt drawn to him and wanted to comfort him. At the same time, the journalist in me wanted to dig to the the core of what was prompting this reaction. Missed him why? Missed him how? In a gentle voice, I asked, in what way? Templeton fought to compose himself. I could tell it wasn't like him to lose control in front of a stranger. He sighed deeply and wiped away a tear. After a few more awkward moments, he waved his hand dismissively. Finally, quietly, but adamantly, he insisted, enough of that. And Lee Strobel never found the answer to his question. Why? Why did Templeton, what did Templeton miss about Jesus and why? We may never know. Can I ask you, when you miss someone, why do you miss them? Isn't there some sense of affection and love? But you have to pause and then ask, well, what love? Because he rejected the Jesus of the Gospels. And the Gospels are the only Jesus presented to him that he could begin to love. 
you almost sense a conflict in his soul. Can I say this? Why, and this is related, why is divorce so prevalent? I would say it's unfulfilled expectations. Did we fall in love with the person? Or did we fall in love what we hoped the person would be? You see, there's expectations. When we're talking about loving Jesus, we're talking about expectations. So if we love Jesus, why do many leave him or stray from him? And if they, they, they stay with him, they tend to downshift into neutral and they go nowhere. It's as if they become numb spiritually. I want to ask us this question tonight. Are we in love with Jesus or just the idea of Jesus? Let me ask that question again. Are you in love with Jesus or just the idea of Jesus, Because with the idea of Jesus comes expectations. If you truly love someone, you will stay with them no matter what. Within your power, you will stay with them. The problem, though, is that within Christianity, we see a swell of people who are missing the answer to this question, and they are falling in love with an idea of Jesus and not the person of Jesus. And what I want to do is I want to unwrap that tonight. There's probably in many of your minds some confusion. What is, what's the difference between you know, loving and the idea of Jesus and truly loving Jesus? Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 21. While you're turning there, I would, like you to, I would like you to jot down an answer to this question. So you're turning to Matthew 21, but you're listening with your ears. Why do you love Jesus? Why do you love Jesus? Maybe for some of you, you need to write down this answer. I don't know. I don't know why I love Jesus. I guess I just do. Maybe you say because my parents do. Or because my friends do. Or just because I guess I should. Shouldn't I? I mean, I'm a Christian. Shouldn't I love Jesus? Or maybe you would say because I I would feel guilty if I didn't love him. Or because it makes me feel loved. One word summary of all of those answers that I just gave. Expectations. Expectations. This was expectations. This was not new for Jesus. Jesus had to deal with expectations. Because when people said they wanted to follow him, they followed him with expectations. And many, many times he had to take those expectations and just discard them or blow them up. Or, 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 or set the world in a spin because they didn't understand who he truly was. He even at one point said to his disciples, so will you too leave me? 
And their response was this. Why should we? You have the words of life. Why do you love Jesus? I'm not going to feed any more answers. I truly want you to write down an answer. Right there in your, on the back of your bulletin, sermon notes. Why do you love Jesus? Matthew 21. Are you there with me? Verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. This is actually found in Zechariah 9, verse 9. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placing their cloaks on them, that is, on the donkeys, and Jesus sat on them, that is, on the cloaks. Jesus Didn't sit on both donkeys, understand. Okay. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. We have two groups here. You may not have recognized them. The first group starts with Jesus in Bethany, moves to Bethphage, and then begins to crest the hill (coughs) called the Mount of Olives. As he crests the hill, there is another crowd. This crowd is from Jerusalem, and they come and join him with the Pharisees. In other Gospels that record this very same story, the Pharisees say, Jesus, you need to quiet your disciples. This is blasphemy, in other words. And Jesus said, if if they're quieted, even the rocks will cry out. And can I say this? The, the, the stones will cry out. Luke tells us in just a few verses later what those stones were. Those stones were the stones of the temple. As the temple was dismantled, not one stone remained on another. They stood as a testimony to the Jewish nation that had just rejected their Messiah. Those stones cried out to them. So this other crowd joins the, <clears throat> the first crowd and walks Jesus into Jerusalem. And if you have a, a map of this, you will find that this road goes into the northern section of Jerusalem towards the temple. One road forks off and actually goes directly into the temple. Another one goes around the temple into the city and next to the temple. Jesus, it says, went into the temple kind of assessed it, went back to Bethany the next morning he went, and he cleared the temple. I'm not going to get into that story, but I want us to look at these two groups 
tonight. I want to focus first on the, actually the second group. The second group hears that Jesus is coming. They leave their city and they come out to him. And what is it that they begin to say? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And they're praising him to the point where it's embarrassing for the Pharisees. Listen, tell your disciples to be quiet. I want to ask you this question. Concerning that second group, did they love Jesus? Fair enough question, isn't it? Did they love Jesus? And on the surface, doesn't it seem as if they do? There they are. They're praising him. They're taking off their cloaks. Their cloaks are, are somewhat expensive. They don't just have a Walmart close by in which they can buy one that's, that's on clearance. They have to make these or buy them. They're expensive. They take their cloaks off and they put them on the ground for the donkey to tread on them. Or they take palm branches and wave them and lay them on the ground. they understand what is happening here. Here is Jesus. I mean, they may not have understood what Jesus was doing in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. And if we have time, no, we're not going to have time. We're not going to look at that tonight. But you can go back to Zechariah 9.9, a direct quote from that. They understand that it is a king who enters into a city one of two ways. If a king enters a city on his donkey, it's peacetime. If a king enters a city on his horse, it is wartime. How did Jesus enter Jerusalem? On a donkey. It is peacetime. And this catches them a little, you know, a donkey, okay, we get it. But their expectations were that he would probably be riding a horse because if he's the Messiah and he truly is the king of Israel... He's going to come in and he is going to eventually take over Jerusalem. And, of course, throughout the world, peace, or, and, and Jesus is going to be their conqueror. Did the second group really love Jesus? I mean, it sounds like it, doesn't it? But here's a question I'd like to ask you. Five days later, Jesus is on trial in the morning. And where are they? Many of them are probably right there in the crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him. They expected a king. But in those five days, all that Jesus did was he angered the leaders. He didn't curry their favor. If you're going to have a coup and overthrow the Roman stranglehold on Jerusalem, you're going to have to win the politicians uh, uh, Jewish politicians and the Jewish leader, Jewish religious leaders. He did neither. Jesus, in fact, on several occasions, predicted the destruction of Jerusalem. Go figure. He even spoke of going away. He gave parables implying that he would go away and be crowned king. He did this in public. What confusion that would have, that would have brought. There were no political maneuvers for power. And then, of course, as I've mentioned, here he comes riding not on a horse, but on a donkey. By Friday, 
their expectations were crushed. All they could say was crucify him. You know, I think they loved the idea of Jesus. They just didn't love Jesus. They loved the idea of a political conqueror. They just weren't in love with Jesus himself. Can I ask you this? What are some of your expectations? At some point, most of you, maybe all of you, came to an altar, you made a confession, and you said, I believe in Jesus. Let me interpret that. I love Jesus. Why? Because Jesus will be able to help me. Because Jesus will make me happy. I was depressed and I needed Jesus. Jesus will bring joy into your life. But is that why you follow him? Why do you follow him? Are you looking for a mate? Come on, let's be real. You're looking for a mate. And you figure, well, I'd like a really good mate. So I want to follow Jesus. And I want to be the best Christian that I can. And maybe I'll marry a really good Christian woman. You know, I hope God blesses you. If you're a guy here tonight, I pray that God would bless you with a wonderful Christian woman. If you're a lady here, I pray that God would bless you with an absolutely godly man. But is that why you follow Jesus? Is that why you love him? What are your expectations for Jesus? Because here's what's going to happen. Jesus will allow you to go through trials and suffering. And sometimes it's one after the other and it throws you into this confusion. And if you're not careful, spirals you down and you're wondering, Jesus, where are you? What an honest question that is. How many of you ever asked that question before? I'm going to raise both my hands on this one. If I could raise both my feet, I would, but I got to stand on one. The truth is that even the psalmist, right, this one, Psalm 13, and there's many others, but even the psalmist, David, said, God, and I'm paraphrasing, where are you right now? God is not afraid of these tough questions, but how, do, how did the psalmist resolve it? Was he angry with God? Did he throw a temper tantrum and walk away from God? He always, always came to this resolution. But I will sing of your unfailing love. And in the midst of this trial, I will acknowledge that you are still Lord. What drove the psalmist to that conclusion? Because that certainly was not the conclusion of our friend Charles Templeton. His questions were compounded. I I don't know why his his first wife died. He was, I believe he was 42, 42 when she passed away. What grief, what heartache. For him, it was probably the last straw. I will not follow this God. His faith came to an end, if if it was faith. No more. If I were to ask Charles Templeton for the 11, why did you follow Jesus? I don't know what he would say. But I do know that at some point, 
His faith was too shallow. And he, the ice broke and he fell through. At some point, he would not have been able to give a right answer. Why do you love Jesus? So I'm going to ask you, why do you love Jesus? Because that is going to start getting at certain expectations that you have of him. I'm going to skip a certain portion of my notes here and just jump to the third point. The first crowd. They are the ones that begin to follow Jesus from Bethany. Turn to John 12, if you would. In John 12, the very beginning of chapter 12, we see that Jesus arrives in Bethany, which happens to be where Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, very close friends of his, live. The chapter before Jesus, we see Jesus and he has raised Lazarus from the dead. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. But here he is, he's in Bethany. On the very next day, the people from Bethany have been gathering knowing that he's there in town, and they then begin to follow him. Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem. Until Monday night, every night, Jesus left Jerusalem and went out to Bethany. From Tuesday night on, he spent the night in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, I should say. So, two-mile journey there and back. On his way, Sunday morning... First day of the week, the crowd from, Beth, from Bethany begins to follow him. Uh, at Bethphage, he gets a donkey, and he sits on the donkey, and people begin to realize, what is Jesus doing here? He, he, he must be riding on a donkey. He must be proclaiming himself. When he gets to Jerusalem, whoa, I wonder... But there is some, there's a reason why they began to follow him in Bethany. And John tells us. I want you to look there in verse 9. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came. Not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. The next day, that would be Sunday morning, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, etc. This is the second crowd. They come out to meet him as he's cresting the Mount of Olives. In verse 18, uh, excuse me, verse 17, it says, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. That is, there were those in Bethany and they saw Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. They saw Lazarus, a close friend of theirs, suffering as he was and wondering, what is it that is going on here? Word has gotten out to Jesus and he still has not come. 
Lazarus dies. Jesus shows up four days late. What disappointment. Jesus, I'm sorry. You know, you're, you're too late. He's dead. What disappointment. Here is a, here's a, a, a friend that the people in the city loved. They, they wept when he died. Daily they were visiting the tomb. And when Jesus arrives, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And Martha's saying, you know what? Mary is saying, but I, I realize that you are going to raise Lazarus one day. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. God's going to show his glory today. And so he, go, he says, take me to the place where you laid him. And so they take him to the place. And there is this, when you understand the context, if you truly would understand the context, I think you too would say, as the gospel, as John says, Jesus wept. Right there, as he, is, he knows what he's going to do. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But when he arrives on the scene, what does he encounter? He encounters the dashed expectations and hopes of the people. The grief that is so deep. Yes, one day we'll see Lazarus, but now he's lost to us. And the reality of death. Hits Jesus. The human experience of separation hits Jesus. And emotionally it just overwhelms them. And the people are wondering, did Jesus come here to, to mourn too? And then Jesus says this. Roll the stone away. Now, I want you to imagine if you were one of those people gathered there and you're mourning and, and you're experiencing grief like this. And that was a way that you could demonstrate love. We loved Lazarus. That's the way they could demonstrate love to Martha and Mary. We loved Lazarus. We were so sorry. They even had professional mourners. I don't think they needed them here. There were so many who loved Lazarus. And as they're gathered, their crowds gathered there, the, Jesus says, roll the stone away. Can you imagine the expectation? Whoa, what is, what is Jesus going to do now? And Jesus does not ask. Jesus gives forth a command and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus shows up in the, very, in the opening to the tomb, bound as he was in his grave clothes. And can you imagine the jaw dropping at that moment? Wow. I can tell you right now, at that moment, lives were changed. This is not just any ordinary man referring to Jesus. This is the Son of God. And it says in the very next verse, chapter 11, verse 45, therefore, therefore, as a result of what just happened, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. Do you know why they put their faith in him? 
Do you know why at that moment, if you were to ask them, so do you love Jesus? They would say, absolutely. Because they didn't fall in love with an idea of Jesus. They fell in love with the Jesus. They fell in love with the Jesus, though, though, though they had experienced uh, grief, though they had had their hopes dashed, they experienced the love and the power of Jesus Christ. Can I just say this to you? If you're going through some difficult times right now, get your eyes off of those difficult times and try to see beyond them. For these people... They needed to be able to see four days into the future. They needed to be able to see on that day their beloved friend who had just died was going to be raised from the dead. Physically, bodily raised from the dead. Now, I'm not going to say that they believed that that would happen. But that's what they experienced. They, they had expectations. Those expectations were crushed. Jesus comes on the scene and he does a phenomenal miracle. We can look around in our lives and we can see mayhem to the left and to the right. We can, we can allow ourselves to be discouraged. But I want to I say this, that Jesus is able to go beyond all of that trouble and those hurts and, and, and the, the fears that we have and, and the, what seems to be our world crashing down around us. And he always, church, always, always, always has a hope and a future for us. He will always take these things that seem to be so horrible and bad and he's able to turn them around. And Joseph put it this way. What you meant for evil... God meant for good. And I'm going to tell you this, that the worst troubles, the worst the troubles are that come to you, the more that God has to turn around and use for his glory and your good. And so when you begin to see the walls tumbling down and all of your hopes and expectations crushed and they're mounting more and more and more, know this, that God is in the process of getting things ready to do something absolutely amazing on your behalf. He did that with Lazarus to the point where these people's lives, they were totally changed and they put their faith in Jesus. Now John, in John 8 30 and 31, he makes a big deal about the difference between believing in Jesus and believing Jesus. I don't have time to get into that right now. Believing in Jesus, chapter 8, 30, and believing Jesus, verse 31. For those who believed Jesus and didn't believe in him, he said, you are slaves to sin. And you need to be set free. And it's the truth that will set you free. So here we have Jesus. He's raised Lazarus from the dead. And the people, have, their lives have been changed. And they are following Jesus from Bethany. because <clears throat> Now Jesus had, had left and he had then come back to Bethany. They heard he was there and they wanted to see him again. And so they're following him to the, the Passover festival. That lasted for a week before and a week after. 
And so they're going to the temple with Jesus. And he comes to Bethphage. He gets on this donkey. They thought, oh my goodness, this is a, this, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Their expectations were crushed. Again, their expectations were crushed. But they were not the crowd that came from Jerusalem to meet them. They had only heard about Jesus. They had only heard about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And they were, wow, let's go out and let's meet him. Let's see what's going to be going on here. Unfortunately, five days later, that second crowd was the crowd that put Jesus to death. That shouted, crucify him, crucify him. So I want to ask you that question again. Why do you love Jesus? What are your expectations? If, if God were to do something in your life and not meet those expectations, what would you do? I fear that some of us are sitting on the fence tonight, right now, sitting on the fence, one, one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom. If you were to say, do you love Jesus? You would say, well, I guess I do. You're not certain. There's a sense of expectation. And you're not sure if you really are willing to follow Jesus at any cost or not. So here's my next question to you. What would you be willing to sacrifice to follow Jesus? I think this is the question that, that Diego posed to the teens last night. What would you be willing to sacrifice? I want to ask you that question tonight. What would you be willing to lay down? Would you be willing to lay down the possibility of being married? Or lay down the possibility of having children? Or lay down the possibility of having that dream job that you've been getting uh, your four-year degree in and making a lot of money? Would you be willing to lay down comforts? What if he were to ask you, oh, God forbid, that you would be called to the mission field to a third-world country and you would forfeit just about every single American human comfort? Would you be willing to go? Would you be willing, as Jesus asked, the rich young ruler, sell everything you have, and then you can follow me. What would your answer be to that question? Maybe you're following Jesus because, hey, that's the best way to live. And maybe if I follow him, I'll be financially blessed and set in life. And what happens when tragedy comes? Then what? For my wife at age 16... That question was put to the test. Do you love Jesus? She lost her best friend next to her in a car accident. She managed to live. For whatever reason, God's grace saw fit to rescue her. And I'm glad God did that. And I know my children are. And I know all of you are. But God saw fit to spare her life. But she lost her best friend. Tragedy struck. And she chose at that moment in the hospital not to run from Jesus. But that's when she gave her, height, gave her heart irretrievably to Jesus. 
I was speaking with Leanne Benjamin just the other day. And Leanne, for some reason, has been going through an awful lot, one thing after the other. She said, you know, Pastor Mike, Job has become my favorite book recently. There's just so much that's happening, and I don't understand why. And And I said, Leanne... What a tragedy. Here is Satan. He's trying to set these things up for, for you to, to make that. Just, you know what? I just don't want to follow Jesus anymore. And she interrupted me and said, Pastor Mike, I could never do that. He's my everything. And I said, good for you. Because when tragedy strikes, that's what really tests our, the resolve in our heart. I'm going to tell you, Leanne, these things are happening and God has something awesome in store. I don't know what it is right now. He's not showing me. But he has something awesome because he is allowing these things for a reason. And he is, he's, he's making your faith stronger and stronger. And God is allowing certain things in your lives. And he's making your faith stronger and stronger. And he's building this awesome testimony. Of, of, of a faith that's been tried and purified and, and totally abandoned to Jesus Christ. And it's going to be, God wants to use that faith and that testimony of his goodness because you are not satisfied with just looking at your present awful, awful experiences, but you set your sights on Jesus. You set your sights on, on the things that were good that he has planned and you believed that what the devil is planning for evil, God will turn around for good. Whatever that is, it may have nothing to do with my comfort. It may have nothing to do with me. But it may have everything to do with his kingdom and advancing it and people being blessed and encouraged, and inspired, and longing for Jesus, maybe even one to his kingdom, because of what he's allowed you to go through. I I can't say what God's ultimate purposes were. I know for Lazarus, it was being raised from the dead. Go figure, four days earlier, who would have thought? Leanne, I don't know what God's going to do in four days. He could do an absolute awesome resurrection miracle in your life. God could do a resurrection miracle in any of your lives. And so I'm going to ask again, why do you love Jesus? Loving Jesus is very simply this. He has changed my life. And I am forever and irretrievably his. And I will be willing to sacrifice whatever he wants me to. I'm not asking that you like it. God is not asking that you like it. God is not saying, hey, please pray for really bad things to happen in your life. He's not asking you to do that. But he is asking you this. When you go through those hard times and your faith is tried, then what? Is Jesus still enough? In your moment of utter, complete weakness... Where truly you can't do anything. It is totally out of your control. Are you content to say, God, whatever you want. May your will be done. And I will be happy with that. Because I will follow you. No matter what. I think the divorce rate in our day is skyrocketed. Because people do not understand what it means to be in love. And their love is filled with expectations. And it doesn't usually take too long. They're dashed. 
they're destroyed, and they want to give up. God has called us to a love. Not the love of the idea of Jesus, but a love for Jesus himself. Totally surrendered, given to him. A willingness to sacrifice whatever we may need to for him. Can you stand with me? We're going to be taking communion right now. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. This is a time in which we remember what Jesus has done for us. His sacrifice, the love that he poured out for us. If you could get the children, please. Thank you. This is an opportunity for us to reflect on the cross. We sung, lead me to the cross. Church, let's go back to the cross. Let's go back to that moment in which Jesus made that decision in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will but yours be done. And when he hung on that cross, the Bible says he did this for the joy set before him. God so loved the world that he gave. This is the God who laid his life down for us, took upon himself your sins, bled and died. The Son of God bled and died for me. For me. This is amazing grace. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat in remembrance of me. Father, thank you that you were willing to send your son Jesus. That Jesus, you were willing to step down out of heaven and take on human flesh, becoming like me and all our frailty. And you were willing to suffer bleed and die because you loved us this much. Jesus, thank you that your body was broken for us. And on that same night, Jesus took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This is the cup of his blood that would wash away all of our sins. Everything in our life that stood opposed to God, he removed all of it. And if you're here tonight and you have never trusted in Jesus, you have never surrendered to him, you have never chosen to love him with all of your heart. You have never chosen to follow after him. Make the decision tonight. I'm going to call you out. Follow Jesus. His blood was spilled for you to wash away every sin. 
You are no longer estranged from the holy, loving God. You are welcomed into his family. You are a part of his family. Jesus stepped out of heaven to die for you. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So how about you? If tonight you have never made that choice to truly follow after Jesus, the Bible says don't don't partake of these elements. Don't partake of the bread or the juice. But if you have, if you've made that decision, if you have surrendered all to make him your all, he invites you to the table to remember that his body was broken for you and his blood was shed on your behalf to make you right with God. So Father, I ask your blessing on this cup as it would remind us of what Jesus endured on the cross for us, the blood that was shed for me, for the washing away of my sins forever and ever. He who knew no sin became sin for me. Jesus, I love you. I love you with all my heart. Thank you for what you've done. You are so amazing, so awesome. Bless this cup in Christ's name I pray.